Both my parents grew up in small towns in northern Wisconsin. And they moved around a lot. My dad was in the Navy and then the Coast Guard. And so they moved around to a lot of short duty assignments. They never put down roots, really. Even when they went back to Hayward after he got out of active duty, he then went to the State Patrol Academy and then was stationed in the Kenosha Division. And that's where he, they ended up putting down roots, buying a house, because he thought he was going to be there for a while. But it was also their first time really living in a larger city where they got to get to know people, they were putting down roots and everything like that. And unfortunately, it was the 70s when that happened. And I don't know how the 70s were in the smaller towns, but in the bigger towns, they kind of get swept up into a party atmosphere. It was a disco time. A lot of clubs um, were in Kenosha. Very, very heavy uh, party atmosphere in the town at the time. And it led to them falling into several different things, and, and they ended up separating when I was five years old. Unfortunately, that led me growing up into some situations that probably weren't conducive to growing a child. My, do, my father kind of went the other way when he was fired from the state patrol. Um, he just basically wasn't renewed or wasn't taken after his probationary period for a few reasons. And he went the other way and he joined a motorcycle gang. And my mom had a few boyfriends, one primary, and they really didn't want me around and they didn't like me. So I was kind of in some abusive situations. And prior to that point, I had also always been kind of an introvert, kind of a quiet kid, kind of kept to myself and everything. And, and that made it very, very bad. As I learned to shy away from being around people, I learned to you know, keep myself, entertain myself, not make noise, not stand up, not be noticed, and just kind of be by myself. And the other thing that did to me, though, is it made me constantly want to seek the approval of others. And when you grow up not receiving a lot of approval, and when you grow up and you don't feel like you're being loved or being noticed, and you're just kind of that, that thing that I have to take care of, you grow up like that, is you have a tendency, or at least I had the tendency, to become almost a chameleon. In other words, I was going to adapt very quickly to whatever I was surrounded with in order to fit in with those people. So in school, if I was hanging around jocks, I would immediately pick up on their language, what they cared about, and become an expert in this also. So if they're talking about football, I'm going to join the football team. I'm going to read books about football. I'm going to try really hard at football, and I'm going to become the best possible football player I can be so I can fit in with that group. But if I was going to hang around burnouts, I'm going to learn what they were worried about. You know, they're worried about going out back and smoking dope. They're worried about um, the next party or anything. If I was hanging out with some of the smart kids, I would, you know, study a little bit what they, they were talking about so I could um, have an intelligent conversation with them. And I kept going through life, and I would try to adapt to whatever I was surrounded with. It even followed me into my work life. I remember when I started working in restaurants that I would immediately I would hang around the managers and just listen to them talk, and I would adapt their language. I would learn about food loss. I would learn about different things that, that affected the management so I could talk to them and, and try, to, try to fit in with that kind of a, an environment. The problem with that is that when I got saved, 
I carried that same kind of dysfunction into the church. And I quickly learned to speak the language. I quickly learned and adapted to the expectations of those who were in church with me. And I was seen as, as kind of one of those success stories in the church early on because it seemed like I immediately adapted to things in the church. I kind of wanted to be in with that in crowd. And for years I was able to use that to cover up exactly who I really was on the inside. And I use that as a defense mechanism to desperately cover up who I really was about, who I really was on the inside. And I used it to cover up even a lot of deep-seated sin to, and showed this face to everybody. And everybody thought I was this great Christian and an up-and-coming leader in the church and all that. And when a person is really concerned about what others think about them, it affects in how they view and values the opinions of others more than anything else. It, they will not hesitate to mistreat other people if it brings the approval of that in crowd or the cool people or the people that you're trying to get close to. I'm thankful to say that the Holy Spirit has worked out a lot of that within me. I still catch myself being a chameleon sometimes and I have to repent and say, no, I stand for Jesus and not for the approval of others. But for the most part, a lot of that has worked out in my life. And I wanted to, to tell you all that because I want to frame this section of scripture in this kind of a mindset because it talks a little bit about this. Jesus' brother James talks about liberty twice in the opening chapters of his book, and he always equates liberty with following what is in the scriptures and talking about the law of liberty. So let's read about it. James chapter 2, verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whosoever will keep the whole law yet stumble at one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Verse 12, so speak and do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And I ask, Lord, that the law of liberty will be made more clear, more precise, and more of an important thing in our life this morning. That as we look upon your word, we will see it not as something that is restrictive, but something that is liberating to us, Father. Lord God, be with us this morning as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So James talks about this law of liberty, both here and in verse, or excuse me, chapter 1 and verse 25. So what is the law of liberty? What is he talking about? Well, he's simply talking about revelation 
It all contains the word of God, the triumph of God, the will of God, and the final ages, the way of God over the evil of this world. It contains within its pages the way of salvation and the hope of mankind. That is what he's talking about when he speaks about the law of liberty, is this book in its entirety. In this book, it runs very counter to our culture, doesn't it? It runs counter to the world's way of thinking, and it runs counter to our own natural way of thinking, our own inclinations to how we want to respond to the world, especially on the emotional level. And verse 8 here really sets up the following verses when it talks about fulfilling the royal law, and then it gives us some ways to do just that. So how does this law of liberty break these chains that society has placed on us? How does it has it remove the need for us to have acceptance by this society? How does it obliterate the need to have everybody else like us and have everybody else approve of us at the expense of our relationship with God? The first thing it does is it removes comparison. Comparison is crippling to your relationship with God and your relationship with each other. Last week we talked about the man in the mirror. You remember when I gave the illustration of that foggy mirror and how the things of this world can fog, um, or the things of this world can fog the reflection in the mirror when we're trying to look at God, or if you're like looking at God through a window, if you have a fog on it, how the things of this world can fog and change our view of God or, or hinder our view of God. So I want to spend this morning, or spend some time this morning, removing some of that fog and help us to see God and his expectations for us a little bit better. One of the things that fogs this spiritual mirror, this spiritual window, is our human desire to focus on the actions of others and how they relate to us. And if you think about it, why is it always so easy to look at somebody else and be able to criticize them instead of just looking inward? You notice how we're so anxious to do that. It's always easy to look outward than inward. And by the way, this is the real reason that most people and most people who call themselves Christians have absolutely no prayer life. None of us want to go into our prayer closet and have the light of God shining into our hearts. We like those places kept dark, don't we? We don't want to, to enter into his presence and actually have everything within us exposed. The reason for that is because most of us, if we were really honest and open with each other, we want God. Most of us, if you're a Christian, you want God, but you want God plus something else. This is in my own life, and I know it's in the lives of most other people. We want God plus something. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's porn. Maybe it's an internet or, or a real extramarital relationship. Maybe it's this hobby that you know does not, me, does not um, meet the approval of God. And it's something that we want to hang on to that we know won't match up to our public persona of being a Christian. But we want that God plus something, so we hide it. 
And that's why we don't dare enter into the prayer closet sometimes. Because we know in the prayer closet, God is there. And he's going to want to bring conviction of that secret sin. He's not going to want to drop a hammer of us, but he wants, just as that picture shows up there, to break the bonds of that sin over our life because he wants us set free. So instead of, instead of going into the prayer closet, instead of dealing with our own things, we want to go to the outside and we want to look at other people. And we want to think, well, at least I don't do that, whatever that is. And a lot of times it leads us to gossip. A lot of times it leads us to look down our nose at other people. And if you think about it, if, you, if you're in, still in a workplace and you, you hang around people, everybody has a gossip that hangs around them. I mean, every, there's always that one person in, in any group that is always talking about other people, isn't there? And a lot of the times we, we, get, we get dragged into these things and, and we, we start listening to it and we're even tempted to, to make ourselves look better by, by dragging down other people. And, you know, Proverbs says that the words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down into a man's inward parts. And gossip, or pointing out other people's sin, feed that part, that part of us that wants to feel good about ourselves, even when it's at the expense of others. And these choice morsels, though, they never build up another person, and they never build us up. They create a spiritual indigestion and spiritual death to the person serving them up. If you look at a person who does a lot of gossip, are they ever happy? Are they ever cheerful about sharing? They're always a person that is, that is very unhappy. They're always a person that is bitter. They're always a person that is just generally grumpy all the time. And for some reason, within our sinful nature, we just feed on that. In reality, these comparisons do one of three things. One, it causes us to have inferiority because it's a spiritual deception that creates this paradox in our life when we compare ourselves to others. When we look upon another person and we say, well, at least I'm not doing that, God. Or, you know, at least, you know, okay, you know, I might, I might cheat on my taxes a little bit, but at least I'm not going out and killing people. How many times do you have people tell when you're talking to them about Jesus, they say, well, I don't kill people. Doesn't that seem to be like the, the standard thing? Well, it's not like I'm out there killing people, so I must be doing okay. But what did James said? One who stumbles at one point is guilty of all of it. And it creates that deception within us that we start to judge our spiritual walk based on the actions of others instead of looking to Jesus. And it causes us to create this image, which is really a facade that other people see but isn't real. And the third thing about comparison is that comparison is healthy only in one case. And that is when we compare ourselves to perfection, which is Jesus. Jesus is our perfection. Jesus is the thing, the ruler, that we stand up to. You see, it's easy for me to stand and, and, try, to, and try to say I'm bigger than, than this thing, but when you stand up next to the actual 
thing that you're supposed to measure up to, we see how fall, how, sh or how um, short we fall to that and how um, difficult it is to, to equate ourselves with Jesus. It's better for our own self-worth and our human nature to equate something that is smaller than us. But that is not our metric. Our ruler is Jesus. The second thing that the law of liberty does is it shows us God's focus. And God's focus is not found in legalism. A lot of people take this book and beat people over the head with it, but they don't live according to the law of love. Legalism is, is trying to find your self-worth with God through simple grudging obedience to the word of God. And legalistic people are those who consciously or unconsciously focus on obedience as a way to make themselves righteous before God. And you know what? more legalistic a person is, the less joy they actually have. Have you ever seen really super religious people? They never smile. They're always frowning. They're just grumpy all the time. And you see people like this, like everybody knows who the Westboro Baptists are who hold the signs outside of funerals and, and scream that God is going to send you to hell and all this kind of stuff. That's an extreme example of a legalistic person, but it's a, a very true example of what that kind of a mindset leads to, is saying, I'm better than you and God's going to send you to hell. Instead of saying, I am no better than you, and it's only through the blood of Jesus Christ that I can even call myself a Christian. But these are the kind of people who insist on dresses on women, no makeup, men show up to church in suits, all these extra things that build up pride within people and make people think that as long as I do this, I'm going to be okay with God. We kind of do this in the church too, though. Even in the assemblies, I remember um, Bible camps where I'd be picking up the kids and they'd be chanting things like, we don't smoke, we don't chew, we don't hang with those who do. Well, what does that really build up in people? Pride. I can say, I don't do this, therefore I'm better than that filthy, rotten sinner over there. That's what that builds up in people. I mean, I understand what they're trying to do, but really the end of that is legalism. And pointing out the sins of others to puff up myself and make myself think that I'm so much better than those people. You might as well change the words to, well, I don't do those things, therefore I'm better than they are. You might as well just change the chant to that. But if you really, really look into the scriptures, who is Jesus the harshest with? Jesus' words harshest words were for those who were more worried about showing a facade to the world of being holy and put together and successful, super spiritual, but they actually had no heart change within them. Let's look at what he said to some of these kind of people. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. Even so, you also appear outwardly righteous to men, but inside are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You know, God's focus isn't so much about 
the obedience to the, the jot and tittle of this book as it is bringing you back to life, restoring to you the same life that, is, that was found in Eden where they were totally free from all constraints and they were just said, just don't do this. This is your one fence that's going to keep you from falling off the cliff. He wants to establish the fences to keep us from falling off the cliff, but after that, he just wants us to live an abundant life. Jesus said that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus just doesn't want a group of people who just look good. He wants a bunch of people that have been changed from the inside through the Holy Spirit and the new birth. I mean, because after all, if we just create ethical people, have we done the work of the kingdom? Jesus said, go forth and make disciples, not mausoleums. Don't make a person look great on the outside, but they're still dead on the inside. He wants that perfect law of liberty to restore us in the image that he originally created within us. And God's different desire for his people is illustrated in 1 Samuel chapter 1. If you remember the story, it's a story of King Saul. People go to Samuel, who was the prophet and the leader of Israel at that time, and said, we want a king. And God said, well, wait a minute, I'm ruling you right now through your prophets. Or that's what Samuel said. He goes, well, God, God is your ruler. They said, no, we want a king and we want to be like the other nations. And Samuel took it to God and God said, yeah, I know. It hasn't escaped my, it hasn't escaped my notice that they want an earthly king. He said, but, you know, give them what they want, but warn them that these kings are going to turn out to be very, very bad eventually for them. That they're going to lead them astray, they're going to take their families, they're going to take their property, they're going to do all these bad things, but if they want a king, let them have them their way. So he sets up Saul as the human king. And naturally, he would be the person he would chose. He's a big guy. Big personality. He's the kind of guy that when he walks into the room, he fills the room with his personality. Very gregarious, very naturally is going to be the guy that people look at to be king. Problem is, is that he just stumbles through being a king because he has no self-esteem, he has no self-confidence, he's totally dependent upon the opinion of others, and he just stumbles his way and stumbles his way until it becomes apparent that he can't even follow the most basic instructions of God. And God tells him through Samuel, I am stripping this kingdom away from you, and I'm giving it to somebody else. I gave, you the, you know, I gave Israel the person they wanted, and he turned out to be an abject failure. Now I'm going to pick the guy that I want. So God tells Samuel, go to Jesse's house. And we're in 1 Samuel 16 now. He goes to the house and asks to see the eldest son. In Israel, the eldest son would have been the first person you look at. And when the eldest son, Eliab, came through the door... Samuel go, looked at him, and he's a, a spitting image of Saul. Big guy, gregarious, self-confident, everything else. And he says, surely the Lord's anointed stands before me. The Lord said, nope, I have rejected him as king. Um, okay, well, 
you know, maybe Samuel's thinking, well, maybe it's kind of a, a Jacob versus Esau thing. It'll be the second guy that comes through. Brings in the second son. No, I've rejected him as king also. Brings another son. I've rejected him as king. Brings another son. No, I've rejected him as king. And Samuel said, well, I don't understand. Who am I supposed to be anointing as king? Do you ha even have any more sons? He goes, well... He got kind of the runt of the litter. He's, he's out tending sheep. We don't even keep him around the house. Nobody really likes him. He's kind of, you know, the black sheep of the family, kind of, and we keep him out there on the back 40. Don't bring him around the house. You need to bring that son to me because I need to see him. So he comes in, and as soon as David walks in, he sees him. He's young. He's short. He's not much to look at. Prophet looks at him and, and he's, he's probably initially thinking, look, I got these guys over here who look like they could be on the cover of Israel's GQ magazine or whatever they had over there. And then you have the run of the litter over here. He looks like he's about four foot tall and he's, he's, he looks like he's about 12 years old or something. And you're going to tell me that this kid over here is going to be king? And God said, that's the one I want. And Samuel's thinking, we went from Arnold Schwarzenegger to Tom Cruise, or Danny DeVito, if you want to look at it that way. I mean, we, we have really changed who we're looking at as king here. And God gives the perplexed um, prophet some instruction here when he said, The Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. Talking about Saul. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For, Lord, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks upon the heart. And what was God's word about David? David was a man after God's own heart. And that's the litmus test that we're talking about, that the law of liberty is supposed to produce within us. Because God doesn't want just a bunch of people grumbling through being obedient to him. Too many people view the law of God and the moral character of God as people viewed Soviet Russia and the KGB. They think that, okay, I have to just trudge through life. Hopefully I'll make it to heaven. Hopefully the angels aren't looking at me. They look at the angels like the KGB or something, that they're going to come and sweep them away. And they, they have this so much fear of, what, of God's displeasure. And that's not the kind of thing that God wants in his relationship with us. Not just a grudging, grouchy obedience to God's will, but a joyful acceptance and faith that God knows best. A faith that says, I trust him. I trust his law. And I'm going to continue to walk with him regardless of how things may look on this world. And that's what the third thing that the law of liberty does for us. Is it produces that kind of voluntary obedience. And it does that by fixing our eyes on Jesus. Seeing ourselves for who we really are. And seeing Jesus for who he really is. The King of kings, the Lord of lords. The Savior of our souls. Some of the most successful addiction ministries ever 
have focused, have finally focused on this. You know, Alcoholics Anonymous started out as a Christian organization. They've kind of gone secular now. But, and one of the things that have taken their place is a ministry called Teen Challenge. And it is, right now, the most successful addiction-breaking ministry ever. Roughly, I think, last time I heard, 85% of people that go through it break their addictions for life. And they do that by focusing people on the law of liberty and making them so focused on Jesus that nothing else matters. I want to end this message this morning by telling you about a man that influenced me greatly in my early walk with God. His name was Gaylord Kling. Gaylord was a man much like my parents, a man that had way too much fun in the 70s. He was addicted to drugs, many drugs, early in his life and was on his way to an early grave. But one day he met Jesus. And he was radically changed, radically saved. Gaylord gazed into that law of liberty and he realized that all these things that he loved in life were in reality chains that the devil and the world had put on him to bind him and drag him down. And he was set free from all that. All the drugs, all the partying, that whole wild lifestyle that he lived fell off of him. He became a radical follower of Jesus Christ, one of the most radical followers of Jesus Christ I've ever met. And he was one of the most prolific soul winners I've ever known. I remember once I was driving home, or driving him home from church, and down the street from the church, he saw this person. He could just obviously tell that she was just having a rough time. She was crying. She was just kind of trudging along. And he said, stop, stop, pull over the car. He goes, I believe in drive-by witnessing. And he jumps out of the car and leads the woman to Jesus. Just like that. I mean, it just amazing. He just walked up to this woman he doesn't even know and just hugs her and says, Jesus loves you. Let me tell you about him. I mean, him and I would go into the most dangerous areas of Kenosha, I mean, where drug dealers would be pulling up, telling us to get out of the neighborhood. And he said, nope. He goes, I'm going to be here for Jesus, and I'm telling Jesus, people about Jesus. <laughs> just a wild man for God. Uh, and I just love this guy. And I don't hold up Gaylord to say, be like him. If he were still alive and here, he would be holding up the same sign that you would hold up in the choir once in a while during praise and worship that just simply said, Jesus. And it's just a testimony of what Jesus can do in your life when we look at that perfect law of liberty. And that same Jesus that did this in Gaylord's life is the same one that is here this morning. And he wants to give us the same freedom, us the same liberty, and us the same love for God that Gaylord knew and he lived until his dying breath. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you, Lord, for your perfect law of liberty. And I ask, Father, that we, look at, we begin to change our minds about the word of God. That we see it not as restrictive of something that the world promises will give us joy or, or happiness or, or anything else that the world says that it will do or keep us from, but we see it as the words of a loving father to his children that he wants us to live 
in such a way that will bring us the maximum joy and help us have the maximum impact on the world around us so that we can be obedient to the word and send the kingdom of God forth into every situation we find ourselves in. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Jesus, that you have had such a perfect revelation given us so that we know how we are to live before you. Father God, let us have this perfect law of liberty in our minds, in our hearts, and in our spirits. Thank you for tuning in to the Whitehall Assembly of God podcast. This is Pastor John Oscar, the senior pastor of Whitehall Assembly of God. If these messages have blessed you, I just encourage you to subscribe to these podcasts and you'll be able to hear every single message that comes out of Whitehall Assembly. If you are interested, go on Facebook and like us on Facebook. We do have a Facebook page, Whitehall Assembly, in beautiful Whitehall, Wisconsin. We also have a website that you can visit, whitehallassembly.org, or you can come visit us in person. We are located on the corner of Dewey Street and Sheila Street in Whitehall, Wisconsin. We hope to see you there someday. If these messages have blessed you, I'd just like to encourage you to contribute toward us being able to continue to bring them to you. You can see that on our website, top right corner of the page. If you have any questions, you can contact me at my email, pastorjohnoscar at gmail.com. If you don't mind, I would just like to take a moment to pray for you before we go today. Father God, I just ask, Lord, that every single person who listens to these messages will be brought into a deeper relationship with you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let them experience the love and forgiveness that Jesus bought for us on Calvary's cross. I ask, Father, that you just use it to enrich their lives, that you use it to make them good ambassadors of the kingdom of God and bring them into your presence someday. Let them be fruitful, let them multiply, and let them be used mightily for you in these last days. Father, I commit them to your care now. In Jesus' name, amen. God richly bless you.